Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Our weekly roundtable is back today from the devastation of Hurricane Ida, leaving a swath of suffering from Louisiana and sweeping across the nation to the East Coast, and with wildfires continuing in California and across the West Coast, climate change, no doubt, is upon us. Is the nation prepared? And what is the responsibility of government to protect the planet? Meanwhile, President Biden is in Louisiana on Friday, September 4th. But how serious is his administration about getting to the root of the climate crisis? And why are people of color hardest hit by the climate crisis? What are the global implications of the crisis with devastating floods in Germany and Spain and massive wildfires in Greece and Italy? Also, the battle lines are drawn on how to prevent the spread of COVID-19, in particular the Delta variant sweeping the United States. Hospitalizations are at the highest point in the U.S. since last winter. So what's going on? And as schools reopen, the battle is now focused on school board meetings where school board members are coming under attack by anti-vaxxers and by other parents who do not want their children either vaccined or masked. Increasingly, children are getting the virus and being hospitalized. This, as Donald Trump is planning a liberty tour of the nation that will include anti-vaxxers. And Roe versus Wade is facing its most serious threat yet as Texas implements a draconian anti-abortion law as the Supreme Court allows the law to move forward. What are the global implications of the U.S. defeat in Afghanistan? As Biden's approval rating falls in the polls, is he trying to shift the U.S. away from a war economy, perhaps to a caring economy? Our panelists are Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views, national and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. I'm Max Pringle with these headlines. America's employers added just 235,000 jobs in August. It's a modest gain after the economy added some 950,000 jobs in June and July. The report comes at a time when the Delta variant spread has discouraged some people from going out and spending money. The unemployment rate dropped to 5.2% from 5.4% in July. The June and July increases were revised higher by a combined 134,000. The gains in those two months followed widespread vaccinations that allowed the economy to fully reopen from pandemic restrictions. At least 48 people across six states have died as the remnants of Hurricane Ida swept across the mid-Atlantic, dumping record rainfall and floodwaters across the region. The worst toll was in New Jersey, where at least 25 died. Authorities said search and rescue and recovery efforts are still underway. A majority of the fatalities were people who were 
drowned after they were caught in their vehicles in flash floods. In New York City, 11 people died when they were unable to escape rising water in basement apartments. New York Mayor Bill de Blasio told CNN that climate change has supercharged natural disasters across the country, and the rebuilding effort must take that into account. We're in a whole different world, and we're all going to now have to act very differently because this is not the world we knew. This is, this is a kind of extreme, brutal weather that's a whole new ballgame, and not just here. I mean, obviously what happened in Louisiana, what's happening in the southwest with the drought, what's happening in California with the wildfires. This is a new world because of climate change that's going to take entirely different responses. New Jersey and New York have both spent billions of dollars improving flood defenses after Superstorm Sandy hit the region in 2012. But much of that work was focused on the coasts and tidal floodplains. President Biden Thursday approved disaster declarations for New York and New Jersey. The federal action was issued to mobilize agencies to provide assistance to areas hardest hit by the storm. The National Weather Service said the storm also spawned at least 10 tornadoes, the most serious of which destroyed homes in southern New Jersey. Meanwhile, President Biden will visit Louisiana today to survey the impact of Hurricane Ida. Biden is to meet with Louisiana's Democratic Governor John Bell Edwards and other local officials. Ida slammed into the Gulf Coast earlier this week, killing at least 13 people and destroying homes and businesses and knocking out power and other services to hundreds of thousands of residents. A man inspired by ISIS stabbed and injured six people in a supermarket in Auckland, New Zealand today. Police shot and killed the man who had been on an extremist watch list. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern said the man was a Sri Lankan national who was well known to the nation's security agencies and was being monitored around the clock. This was a violent attack. It was senseless, and I am so sorry it happened. The attack began at 2.40 p.m., and was undertaken by an individual who was a known threat to New Zealand. Ardern said that because the man was under constant monitoring, a police surveillance team and a special tactic group were able to shoot and kill him without, within a minute of the attack starting. She said that three of those who'd been stabbed were seriously injured. Japanese Prime Minister Yoshihide Suga said today that he won't run for the leadership of the governing Liberal Democratic Party later this month. The move paves the way for a new Japanese leader after just a year in office. Shuga said had come under heavy criticism for his handling of the coronavirus pandemic. More from Feature Story News' Phoebe Amorosa from Tokyo. The news sent shockwaves through Japan on Friday morning and comes after weeks of tense political negotiations. Suga was widely expected to call a general election in a bid to shore up his power and then run for the LDP leadership contest. Local media even reported he would call a snap election this week, but Suga refuted the claims the next day, saying an election was impossible in September due to the COVID situation. He said he intended to go ahead and run in the LDP presidential race as planned at the end of this month. However, Suga has struggled to gain support within his party and from the public. The approval rating for his cabinet is hovering around an all-time low of 30% due to widespread dissatisfaction over his handling of the pandemic. And that's Phoebe Amorosa reporting. The European Union and drug maker AstraZeneca announced today that they've reached a settlement in a legal battle over the slow pace of deliveries of the company's COVID-19 vaccines. 
The deal avoids what was expected to be a drawn-out fight over hundreds of millions of missing vaccine doses. And I'm Max Pringle. You're listening to Sojourner Truth on Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Our weekly roundtable is back across the United States. Ecological devastation created by climate change is destroying and killing vulnerable communities. In the U.S., South and East Coast, people are reeling from the damage caused by Hurricane Ida, the most recent example of climate change. Hurricane Ida's death toll in Louisiana has risen to nine. The state's Department of health confirmed on Thursday. Meanwhile, the remnants of the hurricane destroyed parts of the Northeast, dumping record-breaking rain in a region that had not expected a serious blow. The storm killed at least 45 people from Maryland to New York. The death toll in the South rose to at least 13. From New York to New Orleans, the hardest hit communities have been impoverished, which are disproportionately people of color. They are now left with flooded basements, destroyed homes, and in some cases, destroyed families. Meanwhile, wildfires are spanning the western United States and Canada, burning forests down to a crisp and displacing thousands of people. U.S. President Joe Biden has approved uh, declarations of emergency in California and ordered federal assistance to boost local responders' efforts to battle the Caldor Fire, which struck the South Lake Tahoe region. As of Thursday, September 2nd, the fire had charred more over 200,000 acres of drought-parched timber, some 4,700 acres more than reported the night before. Earlier this summer, the Dixie Fire became the largest wildfire in the history of California. I think it actually tied uh, for the largest wildfire, having destroyed than 700 square miles of land. Wildfires have also been reported in Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. Let us go now to a clip from Yahoo News of President Biden addressing the crisis. The past few days of Hurricane Ida and the wildfires in the West and the unprecedented flash floods in New York and New Jersey is yet another reminder that these extreme storms and the climate crisis, crisis are here. We need to do, be much better prepared. We need to act. When Congress returns this month, I'm going to press for their action on my Build Back Better plan. That's going to make historic investments in, in electrical infrastructure, modernizing our roads, bridges, our water systems, sewer and draining systems, electric grids and transmission lines, and make them more resilient to these superstorms and wildfires and floods that are going to happen with increasing frequency and ferocity. We're reminded that this isn't about politics. Hurricane Ida didn't care if you were a Democrat or a Republican, rural or urban. This destruction is everywhere. And it's a matter of life and death, and we're all in this together. This is one of the great challenges of our time. But I'm confident we'll meet it. We're the United States of America. And there's simply nothing, you've heard me say it before, nothing beyond our capacity when we work together. 
All righty. And uh, President Biden, well, it remains to be seen uh, what can be done. I'd now like to welcome back our panelists. Um, it's been way too long. I'd like to welcome now our panelists. I'd like to welcome Laura Carlson, who is the director of the Americas program and works with Just Associates, an international feminist organization. She's based in Mexico City, where she's a regular contributor to America's Update or Foreign Policy and Focus, Counterpunch, and several Spanish language publications. Laura Carlson is also a television host and commentator on globalization, the drug war, immigration, and gender issues for various international news outlets. Laura, welcome back. Thanks, Margaret. It's great to be here. Okay, and uh, we'd like to welcome Jackie Goldberg, a governing board member for the Los Angeles School Board District 5. She is a former member of the California State Assembly, and Jackie Goldberg had previously served as a member of the Los Angeles City Council before being elected to the council. She served on and was later president of the Los Angeles School Board. Jackie Goldberg, welcome back. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's good to be back. All righty. And Dr. Gerald Horn, um, who is now the winner of the American Book Award for his book, uh, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, the Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. He is the Morris Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written more than 30 books. Dr. Horn, welcome back and congratulations on winning the American Book Award. Well, thank you and thank you for inviting me. All righty. So, uh, Laura Carlson, we're going to start with you. We're actually going to uh, start out this round. We have a lot to cover today, but we're going to start out with the climate crisis. I mean, if you doubted that clim the climate crisis existed, just look at what has happened now with uh, Hurricane Ida. People in New York City shocked. They, after Hurricane Sandy, they had prepared for coastal flooding, but Ida was not uh, coastal flooding. Uh, so a wide swath of destruction across the nation. Uh, but Laura Carlson, the climate crisis actually impacts areas that one might not think is related to the climate crisis. I'd like your take on what is happening now with the climate crisis, but also there is a relationship with what's happening at the border with people fleeing Latin and Central America and coming to the United States and the climate, but not much is known about that. Laura Carlson. That's right, Margaret. There are a number of both direct and indirect um, effects of the climate crisis that are coming that are coming forth now because of the far more evident impacts that we're seeing from the hurricane season that's been particularly harsh, not just Hurricane Ida, Hurricane Grace struck Mexico and left many people dead in the state of Veracruz and other places, and we're seeing another hurricane that's uh, forming right now, and it's unknown where it will be striking. Of course, hurricanes are a common occurrence in this season, but what we're seeing is that they're taking on far greater strength and destructiveness in the context of the climate crisis, and there's a, growing, there's a scientific consensus that there's a causal relationship between global warming and what's happening with the destruction of the hurricane season. So this obviously affects coastal communities, 
um, directly with the flooding that you mentioned, but it's also affecting uh, it's also affecting in indirect ways that it that impact homelessness. Homelessness, for example, uh, in the Northwest and in many places, what we're seeing is the uh, impact on the real estate market, where the wealthy, because of the increased inequality of both the neoliberal economy and the way that it was aggravated by the COVID crisis, uh, the wealthy are buying up multiple homes, driving prices up for everyone, and able to move about in the case of destruction, whereas uh, the other people, other people with less means are increasingly driven out of the housing market and the possibility of buying and even renting in many places that are considered more desirable and safer by the, by the wealthy. The fires in the Northwest have, have impacted daily life in, in a way that no one ever believed possible. It's being referred to as the Pyrocene Age, the time where if you don't have an active fire at your doorstep, you're affected in long-term ways by the health impacts of the smoke. And I just returned from Oregon where I was born, and we could see this very, very directly. Again, no one really knows what the cost will be in terms of both health and the economy of this new normal, which should never be accepted as normal. On the world stage, there, the Central America, a, uh, an area that is already in the midst of political crisis, corruption, uh, violence, a crisis of, of all manner, is one of the areas that's most particularly susceptible to hurricanes and tropical storms. We already saw that last year, and we'll see it again. This, in turn, triggers uh, climate refugees, an increasingly well-known term, that's, but that's just being studied and, and taken into account the migration that's actually caused directly by climate change and by and by the storms and natural disasters that it implies from both areas like Central America and of course from island nations that were beginning to begin to lose and are already beginning to lose um, land it's in homes because of the rising seas. That means that nations have uh, responded in two ways and the most prominent way, unfortunately, is rather than accepting that this is a global phenomenon and there are human lives at stake uh, and figuring out how to receive people who are displaced by climate tragedies, they have closed the borders. This is happening now in particular in the United States, although there's a different discourse on the part of the Biden administration. Many of the newer Central American refugees and migrants who are coming up are climate refugees, and uh, there's a continued closure of the border under the, the bogus Title 42 health regulations and then, um, and then under a series of other measures that are a holdover from the Trump administration, but that there doesn't seem to be a real will on the part of the Biden administration to change, including remain in Mexico, which is sending people back to Mexico. In the, another phenomenon that's really important to mention is that the wealthy, again, are seeking out uh, to privatization and purchase of vast swaths of land that are considered a, ha a haven as climate destruction progresses. 
in Patagonia, the Mapuches have denounced the billionaires from all over the world are buying up their land because it's a place where there's still vast quantities of fresh water. This is land that belongs to indigenous people. So this is leading to land grabs everywhere and climate conflict. Um, this, is, this is the scenario that we're looking at now, and there does not seem to be either a national or a global response, comprehensive response to what's happening. Right, and, and we see it, and you're absolutely right, in, in um, Costa Rica and other places where a huge land grab is happening and those who could afford <laughs> to uh, either travel and live there or uh, buy up the land are certainly doing so. Uh, Jackie Goldberg, the New York Times uh, has an uh, interesting article here about the overlapping uh, disasters exposing the harsh climate reality. And they're saying that the nation faces two separate but interconnected problems. First is that the governments haven't spent enough time and money right, to prepare for something that we've known for a long time uh, is coming and is now very much upon us. But also that, frankly, there are also limits to how much the United States can do or any individual country can do if uh, everybody, all the nations on the globe, don't do more about climate change, including cutting greenhouse gas. And also, um, you know, President Biden in Louisiana uh, gave a very emotional speech about what is happening with the climate, uh, what happened with, with uh, Hurricane Ida. But meanwhile, he has opened tens of millions of acres in the Gulf of Mexico for oil and gas exploration. And there's some um, environmental groups that are suing him on that. So on the one hand, he, he talks about uh, addressing the climate crisis. But then on the other hand, he does something like this of opening the Gulf of Mexico for oil and gas exploration. Uh, Jackie Goldberg, your thoughts on, on all of this and also what can happen in Capitol Hill, given that Joe Manchin is again stepping in the way of even the legislation that uh, President Biden is trying to get through that includes infrastructure, but also includes um, the care economy issues. Jackie Goldberg. Well, I think we're at a very uh, interesting moment in time because I think for the first time really in a very, probably ever, more Americans now believe in global uh, warming and, and you know climate change uh, than ever before because they've personally experienced it. That is a moment that government needs to take advantage of. You know, resistance. There will be resistance to the things we need to do because they will change some of the ways that we live. Uh, it will. There will be resistance to saying that people may not be able to own private cars at some point, or if they can, they can only be those that have no exhaust. They will be only water exhaust, for example, in the hydrogen kinds of cars. There will be lots of changes that nobody wants, and that's why uh, the politicians are so reluctant to do anything except to talk about it. Um, I think that uh, we are at a point in time when first things first, the first thing that needs to be done is to make sure that we've done everything we can to protect people from the effects of these events while they're happening, while we are trying to stop them by changing our policies on uh, emissions uh, and carbon uh, emissions. So first of all, we need to put all kinds of utilities underground. 
we can no longer have Texas have everybody in the entire state be out of out of energy because of a cold snap that froze everything that was never protected. We know in Chicago you can have electricity during the winter, so so can Texas. We need to be building a better infrastructure right now for holding on to as much of life as we can while we try to fight the common effects. That's to me more water storage in places like California where the drought is going to be heavy. We've talked now about water storage sites for probably 20 years. I don't think a single one has been built in the last 20 years. Yet we've known we need to build water uh, storage sites. So I think that's step one because that provides some immediate relief to us. But the real work has to begin, and it has to begin in Mnuchin and M Mansion, rather, I shouldn't say Mnuchin, Mansion, and everybody else <laughs> has got to decide that not only do you not put your party first or your own personal goals first, you put the globe first because it infects, it infects all people. Now, what's likely to happen is not much because the oil companies still have a big hold on Washington. Uh, they actually have a pretty good hold in California, in spite of our so-called liberal politics. We have Democrats providing uh, laws that protect some of their, their holdings. Democrats, not Republicans, Democrats. So until both parties decide that it's time to save the world, and at least to do America's part in saving the globe, the world, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not optimistic about us getting ahead of this. I do think that perhaps we will see my first point, which is there will be some making safer our areas from floods and fires that we can, or by storing water or by doing things that give us some protection, or putting utilities underground that long ago should have been put underground. So we can do some things that will save lives, but unless we are willing to make a much deeper commitment to dealing with particularly the effects of the oil economy and gasoline economy, uh, we're just talking out of one side of our mouth and doing stuff that doesn't reflect our talk. Right, absolutely. Thank you for that, uh, Jackie Goldberg. Now, Dr. Gerald Horn, something that I haven't seen much in the news, AP has been uh, carrying some of the reporting having to do with the photos of uh, black and brown slick uh, floating um, near an offside offshore drilling um, uh, place, uh, obviously hit by uh, Ida, and flooding in the massive Phillips 66 Alliance refinery uh, in Louisiana. And we know that there's a whole swath of, of gas and oil uh, operations. And in fact, uh, according to AP, Louisiana regulators are tracking about 100 reports of chemical and petroleum spills statewide. You're not hearing too much about that. Overturned fuel tanks, flooded um, oil pipelines, sunken boats uh, leading diesel. So that's one thing. I wondered your thoughts on that. But also, the EPA has just come out with a report on the ways that climate change will hit um, racial minorities 
uh, the hardest from indigenous people to, of course, uh, black and low income residents uh, in Louisiana and Mississippi, but also across the nation. And they said that black people are 40% more likely than other groups to currently live in places where extreme temperatures are driven by climate change. And we saw in New York City, in Brooklyn and Queens, uh, the terrible situation of people drowning in their apartments, in these basement apartments, because that's where they could afford uh, to live. Uh, Dr. Gerald Horn, your thoughts on all this? Well, the fundamental question is whether this planet, this fragile planet, can survive neoliberalism and capitalism. We see this not only with regard to Louisiana, where there is a plethora of petrochemical plants and oil facilities, which has led to the designation of that part of Louisiana as, quote, Cancer Alley, unquote. And to your latter point, it also connects to the fact that Cancer Alley disproportionately impacts black people in particular. You mentioned the basement apartments in New York City that were flooded, but also look at the fact of the subways being flooded. And, of course, people of color are more likely to use public transportation as opposed to having access to Uber, Lyft, or their own private vehicle. And I should also mention that it has a global impact as well, because, as suggested earlier, the oil companies are not slowing down. In fact, they're taking advantage of the fact that you have these countries like Guyana on the northern coast of South America, which have been plunged into poverty because of neoliberalism, now having to open up their uh, offshore territories for a major, massive, mega investment by ExxonMobil, despite all of this talk about trying to zero out fossil fuels. I should also say that with regard to uh, people of color generally in the United States, uh, studies have shown repeatedly that the warming of the planet, to the extent that it takes place in certain areas, will disproportionately impact those neighborhoods that do not have trees for shading, which disproportionately means we're talking about black and brown communities. You mentioned Senator Manchin and his op-ed in the Wall Street Journal this morning calling for strategic pause in terms of the uh, Sanders $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation bill. Obviously, this puts into jeopardy the climate moves in that particular legislation, which is bad news for our planet. And with regard to Louisiana, uh, you're seeing the proliferation of uh, what might be called climate IDPs, or internally displaced people, because with the flooding and Ida in Louisiana, just like with Katrina in 2005, you've seen a massive influx of folks into Texas, particularly Houston, uh, which is putting a burden on uh, public services according to those who manage this city. So the final point I'd like to make is that, uh, and I'm afraid to say it's another bit of bad news, is that China is telling U.S. climate negotiator uh, John Curry, the former uh, presidential nominee, that it will be reluctant to cooperate on climate as long as the United States, from China's point of view, uh, projects a aggressive policy towards Beijing. Uh, this calls into question what could be accomplished at the COP26 meeting in Glasgow 
to happen rather shortly. But on the positive side, in light of this debacle in Afghanistan, which I know we'll uh, discuss, the European Union is distancing itself from the uh, Biden team and the Biden administration, which may augur well, hopefully, for the EU uh, not joining in the new Cold War and perhaps opening up space for cooperation with China on the climate. Right. And uh, thank you, Dr. Horn. And of course, the climate um, conference that you mentioned um, happening in Scotland, uh, happening this fall, a lot of people are saying, well, whatever governments discuss, it's going to be too little too late. Also, it was found um, in this same report that um, black people 65 and older are 41 uh, to 60% more likely to die as a result of fine particle pollution or soot, right? Um, you know, of course, we know the impact uh, on young people of asthma, et cetera, in communities of, of color. So there we go. Climate change does impact everybody, but we also have to uh, realize the, the impact of the economic systems um, that we live under, as well as the racial and economic disparities. Uh, so thank you for that. Before we go to station break, though, I do want to give a particular um, Laura and Jackie a chance to weigh in on the attack on reproductive rights. Wednesday, September 1st, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled 5-4 to four to leave in place a Texas law that bans most abortions in the state. It will ban abortions after six weeks of pregnancy. This is even before a lot of people know they're pregnant. I didn't know I was pregnant until after, uh, you know, six weeks with my daughter. And then they have people spying on each other, uh, offering a bounty of $10,000 to turn people in if they're suspected of giving abortions or trying to get an abortion or supporting somebody who is. Um, Laura, let's have a, a, a brief comment from you on that. And then Jackie Goldberg, before we have to go to station break, Laura. Well, this was expected. We knew that this court was purposely stacked to eliminate the reproductive rights of women. So it's not a big surprise. There's a judicial strategy at work here in which it's technically not a ban, but authorizes private citizens in the state, as you mentioned, to sue anyone who performs or aids or abets an abortion. So the abortion clinics are already canceling appointments. 85% they calculate at least of people who come in do not know they're pregnant before six weeks and, you know, do not excuse me, seek an abortion for that time. So it is effectively almost a total ban. And it also includes, and this is just the cruelest possible thing you could imagine, you know, it also include, includes victims of rape and incest. So we're looking at uh, a huge blow to reproductive rights. That's also just the beginning of what we're going to see. There, there uh, will be a number of strategies like this that use emergency appeals, which are completely, in many ways, uh, unheard of within the court system to uphold a questionable law while it goes through the lower, lower court system. They'll be using these kinds of tactics until finally uh, they move to the point of trying to get rid of 
Roe v. Wade. Now, the positive aspects of it, this, this could mobilize, galvanize the resistance. We're looking at grassroots mobilizations and they should yeah. march on October 2nd, and also the possibility of passing new legislation in Congress. Right. And um, Jackie Goldberg, I mean, you have come up in the the women's rights movement. Uh, just your response, uh, brief response to this. Do we still have Jackie on the line? Okay, Jackie, if you're with us yeah, and you're I'm, on I'm mute, here, you I'm need here. to come. I'm, I'm okay, I'm all right. I'm old enough to remember when abortion was illegal in the United States. I am old enough to remember high school students in my class going down to Mexico to try to get an illegal abortion uh, there because they couldn't find anyone here. I know a personally a, a woman who nearly died in one of those who dragged me along to try to drive her there. So we're looking at not stopping abortions. We're just looking at making them unsafe and illegal once again. And we're looking at saying that women's lives really don't matter in America. That's what this is about, and that's what that court has, was packed to do. And here's what they, I got a big flash for them. They have no idea what they have unleashed. They have no idea what they have unleashed. A whole generation of young women who never had to worry about this are now going to be activated, and they will see the results in the 22 and in the 24 elections. I promise you that. Right. Uh, thank you for that, Jackie. Your your passion there, really expressing the feeling of so many. I did know a young mother who actually died from an illegal abortion, and we know yet again it will be women of color. It will be those women with the least resources who can't afford to fly somewhere or maybe even fly out of the country um, for to get their reproductive rights who will be impacted by this. And uh, Dr. Horn, we're just a little short of time. We know that you are in Texas. I'm sure you have thoughts on this as well, but we are going to have to take our station break and go on to this battle that's happening over uh, COVID-19, how to uh, stem the tide, as well as the implications of the U.S. losing the war in Afghanistan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I can tell you Republic's truth to power. One of my favorites there. This is Margaret Prescott. Check out our website at sotrueradio.org. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us there. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter at sotrueradio. We're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And today we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud uh, listeners across the East Coast, um, across the East Coast in New York City, uh, Delaware. New Jersey, uh, Pennsylvania, and internationally, we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Italy. 
It is our weekly roundtable. Our panelists are Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, and Dr. Gerald, uh, Dr. Gerald Horn. And we are now going to turn our attention to the ongoing um, nationwide and global COVID-19 crisis. The United States uh, right now in a terrible situation. Hospitalizations have shot up to the highest level uh, since since really last um, winter. And increasingly, you have young people, children, uh, who are being hospitalized with uh, COVID. Uh, 19 and and who are also just getting the virus and meanwhile battle lines have drawn um, with those who are adamantly opposed to the vaccines and those who are refusing uh, to wear masks on the one hand uh, whatever their reasoning uh, some say they have very good reason for that on the other hand people saying hey you're putting the rest of us at risk and this is increasingly this fight is breaking out in our schools. Let's go to a short clip now from CNN on how that fight is playing out in Florida. Florida's second largest school district opened its doors to students today amid a fight over mask mandates. Broward County, one of two districts that Governor Ron DeSantis says is defying his executive order that prohibits schools from mandating masks without a parent opt-out. The state now threatening to withhold salaries from school board members and superintendents who choose to override that order. That's defying the state of Florida's laws and the Parents' Bill of Rights that was enacted just this past legislative session that I signed into law. Alachua County went back to school last week with a mask policy the state calls non-compliant. Florida State Board of Education now moving forward with an investigation into the county saying they have the right to pursue all legal means available to ensure school districts adhere to Florida law, including but not limited to withholding state funds. This all as Broward County has seen an increase of more than 40% in positive case three day av 94% capacity. In Hillsborough County, the school board held an emergency meeting this afternoon to talk about mandating masks as more than 10,000 students are in quarantine just one week after classes started. According to a spokesperson with the school district, that's 4.8% of the student population and 338 staff members are in quarantine. Hillsborough County Public School District is in a public health emergency. We must act and act now. Miami-Dade School Board member Luisa Santos. I ran to keep a safe learning environment to accelerate learning and to create an equitable and excellent school district. And I plan to live up to that commitment. Just before the Miami-Dade School Board meeting was scheduled to take up the issue of masks in school, Superintendent Alberto Carvalho doubled down on his position to follow the science. If the reward is a threat, I'll wear it as a badge of honor. All righty. Um, Jackie Goldberg, we're actually going to start with you. Um, a very complicated uh, situation here. Donald Trump um, trying to cash in on it, literally. He has this upcoming Liberty Tour that he's doing with anti-vaxxers and even within the Pacifica family. Uh, there's a huge debate uh, going on and disagreement between those who oppose vaccines for those who feel people should get vaccines. You have students 
students walking out of school because they don't want to wear a mask. You have teachers in Chicago, some of them, uh, walking out and uh, going on strike because they don't want to comply to measures uh, that are put in place. And of course, you have Florida, Texas, and, and other red, red states where COVID is on the rise, but nevertheless bearing down on any efforts to uh, stem the tide of it. You are on the school board, uh, Jackie Goldberg. So we're starting with you on your thoughts on all this. Well, school board members are under attack throughout the country. Uh, but if you do the right thing, you can protect the children. And that's really what we are telling our colleagues uh, is to follow the L.A. example. L.A. example, tell, to give you some idea, we have 427,000 students every day coming to school, but we have an infection rate of students of 0.35%, and it's trending down. Why do we have such a low infection rate? We test every student and every adult on a campus every week. We track and trace them, and we make sure that people are safe. We have masking inside and outside. And we have a variety of things we've done to the filters on our air conditioners. We've done everything that we can do. And as a result, even though we have 427,000 students coming every day to school, we've had 2,331 total cases of positive infections for both students and employees. What that means is, is that we have been able to maintain classrooms in all of Los Angeles area, 710 square mile school district with 427,000 students, with only about 15,000 students choosing to do a independent study. So what we're trying to tell the world is, is that you do not need to have your children get sick. And what we're seeing around the world is, is that people are learning this. Give me, I always use Israel as an example because it had the highest uh, vaccination rate. But Israel had to close all of its schools down because it did not take any of the precautions that we're talking about in terms of testing and in terms of tracking. And it also didn't insist that students get in, in, uh, vaccinated. So now they've gone back to school. They finally come back. And what they're saying now is, is that you may not come to a class unless you are fully vac vaccinated or unless you can have had a very recent uh, COVID test to show that you are not infected. That's for children under 12. So this is a time in which we must be protecting children. And one thing I don't think that uh, we need to tell people is that, and it's really important that we tell it to them, and that is, is that that vaccinating adults protects children who can't get vaccinated. And that's the part that the anti-vaxxers do not understand, that every adult who is not vaccinated is a danger to children who cannot be vaccinated. So their little personal choice, their little personal freedom tells a four-year-old in Los Angeles, I don't care if you get sick and die. I don't care if you get sick and die. And as long as there are adults out there in the world who say that there's a, a political freedom, then I want to tell you something. Then don't get vaccinated for smallpox. Don't get vaccinated for the flu. Don't get vaccinated for anything. Because the reason we have a society that can exist is because in the 19th and 20th centuries, we had vaccinations to take, to take care of diseases that were killing vast populations in America and around the world. This is not an a issue of personal freedom. 
This is an issue of saying that health care and health issues are not allowed to be confined to you alone. If you could say, I don't want to get vaccinated, and I will get sick, and I will die, and I won't touch anybody else, and I'd say that's your personal freedom. But that's not what they do. They go out after being not vaccinated in public. They go by where there are children playing. They do things that say that they don't believe that they are a threat but they are a threat to all the people in our schools and all children in this society who are under 12 and cannot be vaccinated. And I am about to push our district in Los Angeles. I think we are about to join other districts in saying that all our students who are eligible for vaccination need to be vaccinated. We've already required it of all of our employees by October 15th. This can work. But you have to test and you have to trace. So I'm worried about Chicago. Chicago is masking. Yes, they are. And they're taking a lot of precautions, washing hands, everything. But they are not necessarily testing. And when they don't test weekly, they don't know where the outbreaks are. We have had only one instance of transmission at a school, and that was two children who used the same EpiPen. Okay, that's the only transmission with 427,000 students that has occurred at a school. It can be done. It must be done. But all adults must take seriously their responsibility to protect children under 12, whether they know them or are related to them or not, because you have an adult responsibility to look out for children in our society. Get vaccinated. Right. Thank Thank you for that, uh, Jackie Goldberg. Uh, actually, Dr. Horn, we'll go to you next because in communities of color, there is that fear given uh, racism uh, in the health system experimentation that have happened on black people, on indigenous people by the medical community, that there is that hesitation. So the reasons, uh, those reasons may be a, a bit different than uh, people who are just, you know, have other other ideas, including uh, the Trumpsters and, and others. But just a quick comment on that, and uh, then we are going to have to move on to Afghanistan. Dr. Horn. Well, you are correct. Uh, I'm sure your audience is familiar with the Tuskegee syphilis experiment that lasted for decades that led to the public health authorities ignoring intentionally and consciously the spreading of venereal disease amongst black men, in particular, leading them to uh, infect their intimate partners, and others. But this pandemic reflects a multi-layered crisis. It's a legal crisis insofar as folks are using the uh, mantra of free speech to spread misinformation and disinformation. It's a political crisis. Here in Texas, uh, Governor Abbott has barred any uh, vaccine and mass mandates, not least because he's being pressed from the right, and there's an election coming up for governor next year, He's being told that he's too liberal, believe it or not, despite this uh, uh, anti-choice law that uh, was just enacted, uh, eviscerating voting rights and all the rest. And then, of course, uh, as ever, it's a political economy and capitalism crisis because the uh, pandemic and the virus has begun to spread, I'm afraid to say, in Africa after a kind of hiatus. And with the fact that vaccines are generally not reaching Africa, that means that the virus will be spreading from the continent. And so what we take from that is that uh, no country is an island. And until this pandemic is suppressed everywhere, uh, all of us 
everywhere will be vulnerable. Right. Thank you, uh, Dr. Horn. And, and Laura Carlson, we're actually going to start this round with you, our final round here. I'm, I'm looking at, at the clock. We've got uh, just about seven minutes or so um, on Afghanistan. You might want to make a quick comment as well on, on the vaccines. But um, here you are, um, the U.S. now out of Afghanistan. Um, 100,000 Afghans, we're told, likely lives lost, over 2,300 U.S. troops lost uh, between October 2001 and September 2019, $778 billion spent, this according to the U.S. Department of Defense. Um, uh, Biden has fallen in, in the polls, the uh, evacuations, the ending, everybody would have to admit was very messy. The, U, the Marines, the U.S. troops who were killed, their families are very upset, several of them very, very hostile to President Biden when he met with them. Apparently one of them screamed at him, may you burn in hell. Um, but there's no doubt that the United States lost the war in Vietnam and now this one. And I'm wondering your thoughts and, and what that means um, on the, not only nationally, but on the global scale. Um, Jackie, um, sorry, Laura Carlson. Well, I, yeah. well, first of all, on the COVID and the school openings in the season, I just want to say that uh, that that our school administrators and educators are are being so very very brave and deserve all our support they're up against not only a pandemic but they're up against a, an extremely difficult situation after the pent-up emotions um that have gone along with the lockdowns and uh and many of them as such as those in florida who are saying even if they withhold my salary i'm going to do best what's best for the children deserve all our support. That's very important as they go back to school and watch this situation. And kudos, too, to the Los Angeles District for the statistics that Jackie gave us and that it could be an example for the rest of the country. On Afghanistan, <clears throat> there's really no question that this war had to end. In some ways, it's not a war. It's a U.S. occupation. And uh, the Afghans, recognized this. A former National Assembly member, Malalai Joya, said that as Afghan women, we have to be enemies. The Taliban, the warlords in government, and the U.S. occupation. If U.S. activists help us end the third, we'll only have two left. It was always clear that it was going to be messy, that it was going to be difficult, that there were going to be high costs. This isn't really a surprise. Could it have been better, done better? Probably. But how messy was the occupation itself? How many lives did it cost? We have to take in the whole arc of the history of this occupation in order to see it. On the international front, uh, there's been a lot of talk about how this damages U.S. credibility. But in many ways, and especially since the Trump administration, the U.S. is now perhaps the only nation that still considers the United States the world moral leader, you know, anymore. And so I think that that will be short-lived and that there will be uh, longer-term benefits. We anticipated a benefit in savings, what was known as the peace dividend after the, after the dissolution of the Soviet Union at the end of the Cold War, but it looks yeah. like that's not going to happen. Um, however, I think as this works out, it will be beneficial because the entire war was such a destructive and wasteful endeavor.
Right. Thank you. Thank you for that. We, we actually need likely a full hour just in Afghanistan. And Dr. Horn, we're going to um, go to you next because there are, there's a lot of global shuffling and global uh, playing uh, going on here. And um, there's also the question of if is Biden actually considering trying to shift away from a war economy? I know the Poor People's Campaign, they've been pushing uh, in, in that direction opposed a war economy into something else. But Dr. Horn, just your thoughts on the situation now with Afghanistan. Well, it's going to be difficult because there's not only a military-industrial complex, uh, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, uh, that is quite influential politically, but then there's an intervention infrastructure that includes uh, cable news, think tanks, university, international relations departments, and it's going to be very difficult to move them away from the status quo. But in Europe, I took note of the fact that during the, the chancellor debate, the party debate in Germany, that Armin Laschet, the Christian Democrat, was quite harsh towards the United States. So I'm afraid to say that the same could not be said for the Social Democrats and the Greens. And interestingly enough, you had a very important meeting in Baghdad just a few days ago, supposedly between the Arabs and the Iranians. But... Uh, showing up and standing out conspicuously like a sore thumb with President Macron of France. And I think it might be indicative of the fact that there's this reshuffling taking place. The Europeans feel that the United States and U.S. imperialism can no longer be a guarantor for world imperialism, and so they need to seek uh, other alternatives. The problem from the United States' point of view is that because uh, its resources have been shredded, by this war, which, according to the Brown University study that Mr. Biden cited, not only cost two million, as he's the figure he used, their latest figure is eight. Excuse me, two trillion. The latest figure is eight trillion dollars. Now, even wow. a superpower like the United States cannot afford such expenditures. But I'm afraid to say that the reporting has been lacking. For example, it's been called the longest war. Although in the 19th century, the United States fought the Comanches for about 50 years, from the 1830s to the 1880s. And even if you look at the 20-year figure, uh, October 2001 up until uh, August uh, 2021, the fact is the United States started intervening in Afghanistan in the late 1970s in order to have payback against Moscow for supporting the, the Vietnamese. And that led to the quagmire that led to the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And I'm afraid to say that some of our liberal friends supported this alliance in the 1980s with religious zealots. Uh, look at Hollywood's uh, Charlie Wilson's War with Tom Hanks and Julia Roberts, yeah. Rambo Three. They're all celebrating religious zealotry to a certain degree. So uh, there's a lot of uh, explaining that's going to have to be done to their stories. Right. Well, fascinating. Uh, thank you, Dr. Horn. Another fascinating roundtable. I'm really sorry that we are out of time. Uh, the, uh, thank you, all of our panelists. Today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank Romero Funes, our assistant producer, Keanu Williams, our audio engineer. If you'd like a copy of today's show, contact the Pacifica Radio Archive. And y'all, please remember to stay safe. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott.